Hey listeners, it's Andy. Just a quick note up first. Uh, a couple of weeks ago in our episode entitled Drummond Has Entered the Chat, um, I really, uh, I've, I realized a few hours after I published the episode that I butchered the explanation uh, or the description of what exactly is happening. Um, so a couple of points I want to clarify. One, um, there are separate compacts that are being discussed, tribal compacts that are being discussed. There are the gaming compacts, which is what I was talking about most of the time because those are the ones um, that Drummond has, is involved with. But the ones that have been happening this session were not gaming compacts. They were actually compacts related to um, tobacco sales and car tags. Um, so those are two separate things, and I conflated those in my description, and I apologize for any confusion there. Um, and then I also, um, you know, want to be clear that I, I, in that episode, I talked about big tribes and small tribes and, um, and those were broad terms that are certainly not descriptive and, and I, I would, I'm sure probably not entirely accurate. Um, there are about three dozen, a little over three dozen, um, federally recognized tribes in Oklahoma. Almost all of them are in agreement about most of these things. In fact, I think all of them are in agreement about the car tags and the tobacco sales. And I also think um, uh, there's a great deal of agreement about the gaming compacts. Um, obviously, a lot of the details about what happens, what's been happening here are much more nuanced and gray. Uh, I'm going to link in the show notes to this episode uh, on a link to a recent story from KOSU, local NPR affiliate, um, uh, a story from Allison Herrera over there that did an excellent, excellent job of, of explaining some of this. I don't want to lead you astray. Just wanted to recognize that I um, fumbled the ball on that and uh, want to try to point you in the right direction. Hopefully you read some of the news articles in that episode and that will be a bit helpful. All right. Thanks a lot. Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. Thanks for being here again this week. In the first full week of August, um, the, the heat broke just a little bit. It's not quite as stifling outside, although I'm sure it'll return any day now. Um, listeners, thanks for being here. Last week, we had uh, our friend JB Williams on the show talking about his new nonprofit organization, Live Free OKC, uh, which is really exciting. And, uh, you know, a lot of what JB talked about was. Um, his involvement in in the community, someone of the community working on behalf of the community in the community with other community members, right? It was a very, uh, I think he talked a lot about the authenticity and kind of the the ownership of his, the world around him. Um, and, and to him, a sense of obligation of, I grew up here, I need to do what I can to make a difference here. And that is a compelling message. I think it's very important and I love what he's doing and I'm sure many of you do also. This week, we're going to have kind of a the flip side of that and, and I hope this resonates with many of you as well that everything he said is completely true and it is not a requirement in many cases to be of a particular community in order to help them. I, I will say from my own personal experience, uh, as, as listeners may know, I used to work in the HIV community um, for a little over 10 years. Um, I'm not I'm not someone who's HIV positive myself. Um, I don't have anybody in my immediate family who is either. It honestly was 
not a cause with which I had any direct connection until I got the job. And through that work, um, you know, developed, a, I think, a, you know, a ton of really important relationships and a deep personal conviction and passion for helping folks with HIV and AIDS, both in America and abroad, um, really changed my life. And I hope that I you know, was able to do good work while I was there. And for many of you, you know, many of you might be involved in the public school system, even if you don't have children in the school system. You might care about um, people who were um, unhoused, even if you yourself have a home, right? There's a lot of things you can be involved in, even if, if it is not kind of your native community in that way. So our guest today is my good friend and colleague, Nicole Bauman. Nicole is the advocacy coordinator with CARE Oklahoma. That's the Council on American Islamic Relations. Um, our friends in the Muslim community, listeners may have listened to, you may remember our episode with Adam Sultani from earlier this year. Adam is the executive director of CARE Oklahoma and is someone who grew up as a Muslim himself. So he is of that community. Uh, and Nicole is not. And so Nicole is joining us today to tell us kind of her story, how she comes to this work from a diverse background of doing many other things, um, and a little bit about why, um, how she got connected, why she does the work, and, and why this is uh, important to her. So welcome to the show, Nicole Bauman. All right. Thanks for having me, Andy. Of course. Thanks for being here. Um, let's start at the beginning then uh, and talk a little bit about um, maybe what you did before you got to care. Well, first, how long have you been at care? Since last October. So October of 2022 then, right? 23? No, 22. 22. Man, the calendar does go by quickly. Um, yeah, so October of 2022. So right yeah, right before the election last yes. year is when you started there. Um, so not even a full year um, under your belt yet at CARE. How did you end up at CARE? It feels like kind of a stumbling, a few stumbling steps to get there. Um, I'd always been kind of drawn to the community in a way. I grew up, I remember in high school. Do you mean to the Muslim community? Yes. So it kind of like the community and also just the faith and just all the different cultures that are found in that community. I remember not 9-11 happening, but I remember all of the hatred towards anything Arab, Arabic countries. Like there wasn't really any delineation between any of it. People just lumped it into one hateful category. Right. And when I was younger, I thought, well, that can't be true. Like, I want to find out for myself. So I started learning Arabic. I had a good friend from Lebanon and her family. And I was like, well, I don't understand. Like, they feed me great food. I don't understand what all this hate is about. Right. And when I got to college, I knew I'd sign up to study sociology because I liked learning about different people and cultures, but then it wasn't super marketable. And I had a professor from Morocco, and he was teaching a governance in America class, and he wasn't even a citizen at the time. And it really inspired me. I was like, maybe I should care more. Because I just knew I didn't like what was going on, but I didn't really want to learn about U.S. government. So I was like, well, that's right. kind of boring. Like, I don't want to. But he was so, like, invigorated by it that I was like, if he's not even a citizen and he cares as much, I should probably care a little bit more. And so kind of through those steps, I fell into a couple of different internships. I interned at CARE in college as well. But then after graduating in the pandemic, I worked just a myriad of really random jobs um, before the job at CARE popped up. Yeah, that's a really interesting story. I remember, you know, shortly after 9-11, a 
sometime, I think I was in college. Well, I know I was in college when that happened. And a few years later, there was like a country song where the singer says, I don't know the difference between Iraq and Iran. And um, this all reminds me of last week with JB. He talked about um, people who you can't, no group is a monolith, right? And mm-hmm. and it, from your experience, right, you saw maybe the Muslim community being treated as a monolith in, in many ways. Yes sidelined right like uh, or or being ostracized um at large when that was not necessarily the case right so talking to your um friend who was lebanese in in many they were kind of one of those groups or one of those nationalities right who can get lumped into the arabic maybe muslim community in incorrectly in many ways um and i don't think that enough folks really like probably take time to like understand the nuances of nationality and ethnicity and religion and how these things intersect or don't in many cases? Yes, that's probably one of my biggest pet peeves. Um, Even before the job, I was lucky. So like my teacher, he was Moroccan. I was able to do an internship in Palestine, study in Morocco. So I was able to learn a lot of that firsthand, seeing even in these different countries that are deemed like Muslim countries and they are Muslim majority, there's so many different groups inside as well that are on the other side of the ocean here people are just like well it's just one big group right and everything's the same i'm like no people have a lot of differences right well and even you know in the last few years i think a lot I, and again <laughs> i guess i'm i'm kind of making a broad generalization that i think a lot of people i'll just say a lot of people in oklahoma and in america when they think of um people who are muslim they picture someone who's arabic right someone from Saudi Arabia or somewhere in there in the Middle East. And I know some folks were surprised then when uh, the last few years we've had Afghan refugees um, being settled here in Oklahoma. And, uh, you know, you guys have done a lot of work uh, and, and kind of reaching out to that community and people being like, well, wait, people from Afghanistan are Muslim too? And being like, yes, like, let's, let's talk about global religions and you know, there's a billion people out there that are Muslim, right? And that yes. from a lot of different countries all over the world, including right here in America. And can- I mean, there's, you know, believe it or not, there's like Muslims in Canada and in Peru. And like, just like there are Christians in all these countries and Buddhists and Jews, like there's, everybody's everywhere, right? This is a global community. Um, what, how does that, uh, I, maybe I have a question is, what's your experience like? at CARE Oklahoma here because uh, we say oh they you know you work in the Muslim community but even in this conversation recognizing that that encompasses a lot of different nationalities um, and I would assume perhaps incorrectly you can tell me if I'm wrong but that that, that um, because of the history of of targeted ostracism of the Muslim community, that even some of those national differences um, can be points of strength or even points of division within the Muslim community. Is that yeah. close to accurate? I think for me, I've come on on a very unique time. Um, in college, I did intern with CARE very briefly, and it was a great experience, but like a lot of internships, you do kind of some tasks, and then you don't really at the time you don't understand the bigger picture, you're stressed with classes, work, and you're just like, well, I'm here, I'll do this assignment, but you don't, it doesn't really resonate with you. But when I was there, there was a lot more Islamophobia, I think it was around 2016, 
And then right now, joining with all of the efforts following the Afghan resettlement, there's definitely a very different atmosphere. There's more people, more people involved, a broader interfaith network. And I think that has helped some people, like in some ways, rally around the situation and realizing there's a lot more common goals affecting everybody, like housing, health care, and just the laundry list of things that people need in this state. Mm-hmm. Um, but also on a, on a daily basis, we do, especially me, have to remind myself of the community that I'm representing. There's a lot of issues I've never faced with growing up in a different culture, different religion, like the hatred at schools, because it's still at its essence a civil rights anti-discrimination organization. So that's always will be the core mission because it's so important. But also having these new experiences and these new community members are making us realize how there's a lot more we can be doing. And it's something that everyone can get behind because you're never going to win everybody's hearts. You're never going to like make everyone's dream vision. Um, But at the end of the day, there's some very like unquestionable things that everybody can get behind. Yeah. So when you were in college and you you'd been taking some classes in Arabic, you you know went to Palestine, you interned at Care. Did you envision then, like, did you hope that you would get to work at Care, or was this just kind of accumulation of knowledge and experiences and find out what's going to happen in in life? I I never would have dreamed that. I continuing my education to do my master's at a university in Belgium. And so at the time, I also did some advocacy work at the European Parliament, and it was a organization focused on human rights in the Gulf countries. So I, at the time, was very, like, human rights-focused, which is hand-in-hand hand with civil rights. But I anticipated I would stay there, find some kind of work, but wonderful COVID. And once I moved back home, I really just – I got jobs to survive. I didn't really have any hope that I would kind of find my way back. I worked at a hospital, pest control, restaurants, REI, and I had considered going back to school to do respiratory therapy or something that Com- I just something completely different. Yeah. Yes, I was I really gave up hope and it was I had signed up for classes and then job popped up and I was like, "Oh, there's no way because I have gone out of my way not to learn anything about U.S. government particularly. (laughs) I studied Arabic, international politics, like so many different courses that I was like, I don't know about this, but I I should try. And then they were very excited and I got the job. So it was not, never would have dreamed it would have worked out this way, but it's never felt like a better fit for anything. Yeah. So were you in Belgium in 2020 when COVID was coming about? I got back right before. Okay. Were you like just home on visit or had you moved back officially? I, I had to. I couldn't. My visa expired. So. Oh, okay. So you had to come back. Yes. And, and then as you're like beginning the process of kind of reassessing, okay, well, what do I do next? Do I go to a PhD program? Do I apply for some other jobs, presumably also in Europe or is yes. something involved in European politics? Um, and then wham, right? A pandemic yeah. hits and you're stuck here with no job initially trying to figure out what life looks like. Um, And I would imagine it's, I don't know that I've talked to anybody who was trying to apply for jobs when everything was shutting down or shut down, but I can only imagine how difficult that must've been. It was very discouraging. I probably applied to nearly 500 jobs. It was every day. I would just sit around and apply for jobs because I was also waiting on some medical things. So I couldn't really get a job to gin out of a job for right, a bit so right. I was just sitting around applying constantly with really no 
little focus point or anything. Right. So it was. Well, and healthcare makes sense because that was one industry that was hiring. Yes. But for so many others, even, you know, retail and restaurants, even, you know, when Oklahoma reopened very quickly, just because places were open doesn't mean that they had business to support. They, in many yes. cases, were just trying to get by with who they had, um, who were also having to make adjustments for spouses and kids and everything else. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, I can only imagine how, how kind of stressful that must have been of being like, I've got to, I've got to do something with my time and to pay bills. And this is a terrible time to, <laughs> to be unemployed, right? And try to uh, make ends meet. Well, uh, so your position at CARE, is it the same position that Veronica had? Because she, there was kind of like a reshuffling in leadership over there. Yes. So and that's what created this opportunity? Kind of. So I have two predecessors. There was, one was AC and then also mm-hmm. Lainey Haybrock. Oh, that's right. And that's so, right. But they were both kind of more or less building up the government affairs department with Veronica. Mm-hmm. And then after that, Veronica kind of just took over all of it temporarily. Because she had to because it was vacant, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they kind of restructured how the government affairs, I would say, stuff works to mm-hmm. be very specific um, so that they could have Veronica more on the back end doing in – Regular folks from the big brain things is how I describe it. <laughs> and then for me, I'll do like more of the meetings, the in-face and like doing a little more of the grassroots building as well. Sure. Yeah. I was going to ask if you could tell us a little bit about what your job looks like as a, as an advocacy coordinator for this organization, like what a typical day or week looks like, or some of the things you're involved in. Absolutely. And it's, it feels like something I'm still learning on a daily basis um, because advocacy on one hand is just kind of that meeting out, advocating for others, very general term. But in this role, I'm really fortunate to get to do just a host of other things. So I do a lot of research and writing for our website. Kind of like you mentioned how this podcast started with the session. During session, I'll do like weekly reports to just help people know what's happening because not everybody not everybody has the time to go to the Capitol. Not everybody feels safe up there. And that's where I'm lucky just being a white girl from Oklahoma. I was like, well, these are my people. So I can go up here, do my stuff. Um, and if I can interject, yeah. I would have to go back to this theme of, um, you know, being of the community or representing a community in some cases, right? And when advocacy uh, as a as one is, or one topic comes up, this is often a situation where it is advantageous for someone who is maybe not of a community to be the liaison there. Because if you walk in to a legislator's office, they see a white girl from Oklahoma and which is maybe not what they would expect when they see it on the calendar of a meeting with CARE Oklahoma because yes. maybe they assume it's Adam or someone that looks like Adam, right? Yeah. That comes in and it that kind of um, shift can change the dynamic of a conversation or relationship, hopefully for the positive, right? Um, I mean, there's a lot of like weird nuances about politics and advocacy and Absolutely. lobbying that – when I started going to the Capitol, whatever my preconceived notions were of like what lobbyists looked like and acted, many of them were confirmed, right? Yes. Some of them were not, but I was just like, I remember in 2017 or 2018 when big tobacco rolled in uh, heavy and deep to oppose a tobacco tax increase. And it was a lot of very attractive people. And I was like, oh, this is it just looked like they're going to come in and as like a charm offensive. Right. Yeah. And I was like, that's what I would expect from big tobacco. I think, um, 
It felt like money and attractive people. And that's, you know, I guess that's what works. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that's why I'm not a lobbyist. I don't know. <laughs> um, anyway, so you do some stuff at the Capitol yes. um, and you do a lot of other stuff. Go ahead. Yeah, I've always seen my role for advocacy in all groups. I'm like, I am here to help build a bridge and then you can just walk over me to get to the goal. I want to be that connecting point. But at the end of the day, it's not about me. It's not about my own personal wants for my political dream or anything. Um, It's just to get those people that are most affected to the people that can help them. So that's the big part in the Capitol, but also with other groups. So we work with the civic engagement table and some other coalitions focusing on issues that impact our communities, but also all communities. So kind of rebuilding some of those like connections we've had prior, but with COVID and then smaller staff, it's, it's, you can only be on so many zoom calls a day. So. Right. Right. Well, I, I like that distinction there that I think many of us hear the term advocacy and assume that means efforts directed at an elected official of some kind to change policy. Um, and the way that you kind of framed it is yes, that, but also advocacy is about relationships more broadly, um, with elected officials and also with community stakeholders or with partner organizations um, to advocate for the needs. So it's not about who you're talking to, it's Mm. what you're talking about or who you're on behalf of. I've always felt it more as the action. Like you can be an advocate at your school. Like, hey, don't talk to my classmate like that. (laughs) Like on a very small scale, like kids get bullied. And you can be like, no, I'm not okay with that. The advocacy is not some grand scheme where you have to dress up really nice, be super attractive and go charm everyone at the Capitol or Congress. Like it's daily actions in different spheres. Yeah. When I worked in healthcare, we had a number of patient advocates, right? Whose job was to advocate for patients, sometimes with administration um, and sometimes just like helping that patient find their voice in a new way and say, hey, here are the needs that I have. And in some cases it was it was more about the patient advocate, like going to the patient and saying, I need you to tell me what you need so that I can help get those resources for you. Not that no one, it's not a issue of people don't want to provide it. It's that we don't know it's there if you don't yes. tell us. And it's super important to also not be, because I come from a great place of privilege, like being a white girl here, that they don't need me to be their voice. It's also just helping provide that material education so that people from the community feel empowered to also go speak to legislators, other communities. Because yeah. at the end of the day, I'm like, I I can go talk to people all day, but they're going to look at me and be like, cool, well, you're not really impacted by this. I'm like, no, but I'm here to uplift those who are. Right, right. Because not everyone can be there all the time. Yes. Uh, you and CARE have been, in, I think, highly involved this year in issues related to housing and housing security. Yes. Um, um, some of that relates to those Afghan refugees that we mentioned earlier, but certainly just a more like a broader um, uh, audience, right? There's a, thousands, millions of of Oklahomans who get the short end of the stick when it comes to landlord tenant issues or housing security in general. Can you tell us a little bit about what that work has looked like this spring or this year? Absolutely. We've um, gotten to join with a bunch of other groups that like groups like Shelterwell, there's the Oklahoma housing, what are your, like tons of other coalitions, (laughs) um, individuals involved and 
for me, it's been a big learning sphere because I was always like human rights, civil rights didn't really, I know housing was very difficult, but I didn't know how bad it had really gotten. And with the influx of the Afghan refugees, all the work between like Catholic Charities, Sparrow, the funding through CCP really exposed how bad our system is and how there's such a lack of affordable housing stock and also safe housing stock. So many of the families were without air conditioning during the summer. We had a family that's like, I had a nicer house in Afghanistan, like that. And just from like the the optic side of the U.S. being like, yes, let's we'll take these people here and then have them live live in worse conditions than under the Taliban says a lot, um, but also gave us the fire to be more involved in this sphere. So we worked closely on a bill's House Bill 2109 that was focusing on anti-retaliation. So we're one of six states that does not have any protections for tenants who file just simple complaints that that's like like something health related, like there's sewage in my apartment, you can be evicted. Like something Just goes. For, hang on. Yes. <laughs> Are you telling me that someone can be evicted because they complain that there's sewage in their apartment, which is not their fault at all? Like yes. the sewer line backs up, they call the office, hey, and then the landlord says, you're out. Yes. So that's bananas. I don't want to say simple because that's not the right term, but complaints of that nature that yeah. are like health and safety concerns, those are not. None of that's protected. So that was something we were working really closely with because a lot of people just continue living in these situations um, out of fear because they're like, well, it's that or being homeless. If you get evicted, it's on your record for up to seven years. It makes renting in the future extremely difficult. Another aspect of that was working to get air conditioning as part of the requirements for habitability. Yeah. In Oklahoma, it's not right now, even though this entire week it's 150 is degrees over, outside, right? Over yeah. 100 degrees, it's not required by landlords to provide air conditioning. Yeah. That's wild. I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff that we have not, as a society, and certainly as a government, have not properly, properly paused to examine of like, oh, wait, we wrote these laws 50 or 60 years ago, and the world looks yes. very different. I mean, Climatologically speaking, the world is very different than it was 50 or 60 years ago. Technolo- technologically speaking, it is like we have we have the tools, we have the resources to raise the quality of life quite a bit. I mean, even for yeah. without like without major investments, you can buy a huge ass TV for like two hundred dollars now. And you know, when I was growing up, you couldn't even get a tiny one for that much money. Like it was. You can not that a TV is necessarily indicative of quality of life, but when it comes to yeah. air conditioning, uh, clean water, you know, toilets that work, like there's a lot of things out there that are very simple and that many of us take for granted, but we have not updated our policies yes. to like raise the baseline of like this is really the baseline of what people need to survive. Yeah. And it's also like the policies themselves are bad, but then the accessibility of those policies, a lot of the language is not, I'm not a lawyer. I didn't do anything law related. Um, But so much of this information is really hard for people to understand. Right. So like that's something because even like eviction notices, all of this information that people might receive, but they don't understand like what this actually means and the impact that this will have is something that needs to be also updated. Yeah. I think, you know, for so many of us, um, 
many people never interact with the legal system at all. And the, the first time you do, maybe every time you do, it can be jarring because that whole like legalese thing is very real, whether it's a subpoena or an eviction notice or even like a jury summons, which anybody can get. Yes. Some of this stuff is like, when you read it, you're like, I think, you know, I know this says jury summons, but there's a lot of other words here that are kind of scary. And yes. I don't think I did anything wrong, but I'm but con- so I'm concerned scary. I didn't do anything right either here. So what do I yeah. do? Yeah. And I think tying back to like the community I work with, um, that's been frequently targeted and labeled as terror- terrorist constantly, like things from like legal departments or courts that is not, that's immediately just like fear. Yeah. There's, they're going to like affect family jobs. So many people are disproportionately targeted by legal systems and police officers. So it's one of those, it's already bad enough for everyone, but then certain communities are just deeply impacted by something that doesn't need to be the way that it is. Right. You know, I think about, I got some junk mail the other day that, you know, had, it looked like an official, I think it even said like official document, like for addressee only, you know, no tampering. It was like a lot of heavy handed language. And I could tell right away that like, this is junk mail. They're trying to sell me something or whatever. But a lot of it like looks like it's an official government document and they're trying to scare people into opening it. And and they do that because it works, right? It works enough of the time they will do it. Um, and it unfairly, I mean, too often, right? It works on people who don't have, who haven't had the opportunity to learn like the nuances of this stuff and, yes. and may not have someone like you even, Nicole, that they can call and be like, uh, hey, I got this weird letter and I don't know what to do with it. And so they just do nothing. Right. And that's not in some cases, that's fine. If it's junk mail, fine, throw it away. That's all you got to do. But if it's something that actually was real, you know, not do not acting or following up can have consequences as well. Exactly. Yeah, that's really tough. Um, So speaking about legislative advocacy directly, um, since you just joined CARE last fall, that means that this year was your first Muslim day at the Capitol, right? What was that like? Tell us about how you were involved in the planning and execution of that. And then just generally your experience. Absolutely. I made make a joke with my directors that they took the training wheels out really quickly and they said, what training wheels? Um, (laughs) So I got to do a bulk of the planning, (laughs) scheduling the speakers and the panels that we had. But honestly, it was phenomenal. I attended the event as an intern. So it felt very the, uh, kind of fear and felt fake on my end. I was like, there's no way I can be in charge of this. Um, But we were really lucky to have phenomenal speakers there. We had some of the newer representatives like Representative Alonzo. We had Sergio from the ACLU. Um, You were there. Uh, Kendra Horn, like just Mm -hmm. a whole host. I was trying to keep it like more diverse, but then also younger people too, because we always talk about how we need to get younger people involved. So that was a big focus of, for me to get, like more representation on our panels and then also people like that others can identify with because the hosts, like the group that we target is more like kind of college age, but Mm -hmm. also like the adults are welcome too. but trying to get people that you can look at what the economy looks like, what everything, how it looks so bad. And this is, it's not going to affect your parents as much as you. So you need to be the one like speaking out more. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. And 
I, I know you had interned with Care, but it sounds like this year was really like your first time to do a deep dive or to be like really pay attention to the legislative session. Yes, I um, have never followed one. Yeah. What was that like for you? A really chaotic roller coaster that had like no seatbelts. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. It was also very informative too. I had done advocacy meeting with like high level officials with a lot of quotation marks on there and it just reminded me that like people are people. So some of the legislators, you can get very frustrated because they'll stand up there, say a bunch of stuff and then say, well, I didn't know that. And it's like, well, well, I think that's very frustrating. You're also human. You can't be an expert on every single topic. Mm -hmm. um, so it's those opportunities that are kind of humbling on both ends because you walk in thinking, well, maybe I know everything. Like I'm here to tell them what's up. But then you realize like they don't know stuff. You don't know stuff. So well, at the day, it's no excuse for bad behavior. Um, it's still there's there's room for everybody to learn. Sure, yeah. Did you? I know for a lot of folks that work in this world, professional advocates, as I like to call you and them, um, it can be tiresome during session because it's not you're not solely focused on the daily grind, the sausage making that's happening at the Capitol. You've got other things going on too. And it can be tedious, I think, to try to follow, you know, the rumors, the yes. actual actions um, in the midst of, like, trying to plan events or help people. Like, you, you know, you're talking about bills dealing with housing while also going to meet coalition meetings about housing and, and trying to say, like, we've got to we have to work on the short term and the long term at the same time. Yes. And that can be a lot all at once. I don't have a question in there. I just wanted to affirm that that was indeed tiresome. Yeah. But I, I think it's also, it's revealing that there are other people doing good work because you can't track everything. And I, during session, we have other professional advocates be like, hey, did you see this bill get scheduled? I was like, oh, I didn't, but thank you so much. Right. So yeah. for, for people who are less optimistic about our political future, I'd say there are good people out there doing good things for everyone, yeah. not just like the groups they identify with. Right. And I think there's a lot of groups that have some overlap. Like, yes, now we can't all do everything that's exactly inefficient and ineffective and just impossible. But there are, you know, key areas. One thing that I know that we talk about often, right, is issues related to poverty, right? That there are many groups that care about that. Yes. I don't know anyone who's pro poverty. Um, but you would think with some of the policies coming out of the building that Somebody must be, or at least we have different perspectives on how to combat poverty. But whether it's, um, you know, uh, free and reduced lunches for school children, whether it's housing security, whether it's, um, you know, healthcare and Medicaid um, uh, related issues, um, even things like public transportation, like all this stuff has some overlap to say, like, people need food. People need housing. People need safety. Like these are all core needs at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? That like we all need. And because of that, there are faith groups like yourself. There are, um, you know, education focus groups. There are hunger and food security focus groups. There are budget and tax policy groups. Everyone might kind of have some areas of overlap. It's a very complicated Venn diagram. Lots of circles, right? Um, 
and that's good because it provides some um, collegiality, of course, some relationships, but also that kind of um, uh, ability to spread out the responsibility a little bit uh, between a lot of people. And I think there's way more folks doing the good work than than people understand, right? Like it's, I'm every I had a call yesterday with someone in Tulsa that's been working on a many of these issues um, that I did not know, and they've been doing it for years. And it's like, oh, okay. Like again, I've been doing this for a while, and still meeting new people who've also been doing it for a while. And it's like, I don't know how we didn't meet, but I'm glad we have now. And it like fills out the map a little bit more. Has that uh, for you? just coming on board in the last year, um, what's been most encouraging that you've noticed that you've learned in, in your work? Oh, that's hard. Um, I mean, I'm very lucky with the team I have. I always feel very encouraged. Um, we get gold stars sometimes. <laughs> like actual stickers? No, it's through, <laughs> through Slack, but still. <laughs> that's good enough. I think for me, it's that even though I'm very new to the sphere in many of the groups that I'm in, I still feel like my opinion is valued, Mm -hmm. even though I know I'm, there's still decades of information to learn. Um, At the end of the day, everyone still brings their unique perspective, whether they are from that community, whether they've done a lot of work to like learn about that community, there's still, everybody still has their niche in the way that they contribute, whether it's how they communicate with others, whether it's more personality, experience, like even some people maybe have all the knowledge, have done it forever, they may not be the best person to like do an in-person meeting. So there's everybody I think brings their unique skill set. And that's something that's really encouraging because you don't want to do all the work and then get there and feel like you can't contribute. I'm a big people person. I'm a big helper. Um, so I would hate, you know, you you get all of your background, you get your little arsenal and you're ready to go. And then someone just shuts you down. And it's the same face you've seen for like forever in mm-hmm. some sphere. And it's like, well, darn it. I wanted to help my community and like get more people out there and get newer faces. But mm-hmm. I think that hasn't really been too much of an issue. And it's something I think is maybe unique to our state because we do have such a variety of groups and backgrounds that people can contribute. And it's really important to know like, when it's your turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um. As we kind of wind down this episode, is are, do you have any, I don't know, I want to say words of wisdom, but like invariably there are people who listen to the show who have been wanting to get involved in, we'll say, advocacy more broadly and haven't found the right opportunity or haven't, or just are unsure. Maybe they're hesitant or they're scared or they feel like it's overwhelming in yeah. some way. What would you say to those folks? What, how would you... I would say no matter what level you're looking at doing advocacy, whether it's through like your kid's school or the legislator or city council, like there's a lot of opportunities. No matter who it is or what level it's at, it's still a person at the other end. And even the most outrageous people, um, you can find a connecting point. You may have done the same sport. You both have kids. Like it can be really faint line, but there's always some way to connect to people and... I think even there's so so much hatred was seen this legislative session that was just outright targeting so many groups and it made it really hard. But then at the end of the day, like 
you still have to find a way to connect and make some kind of change. So I would say for people looking at getting into it who are nervous, maybe because of the person's position that they're like, well, I couldn't possibly meet with him. You can, they too have probably like forgot to mow their lawn or like had a flat tire. Like there's so many regular things that people have in common that might seem silly and like, oh, you can never talk about that. Oh, you can, you can always like sneak in a joke or right. find some silly way that you have in common. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, we're all just people, right? Like, exactly. And in, in meeting folks where they're at. And sometimes that means doing the hard thing, right? And that's lowering your own guard sometimes to let them see you for who you really are in hopes that they'll open up a little bit as well. Um, that can be scary, I think, for everybody. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Nicole, if people want to get involved with care, do you guys have volunteer opportunities? Do we have, I believe on our website, you can sign up for emails, but we constantly have fun volunteer opportunities. Great. And what's that website? Careoklahoma.com. Perfect. Awesome. My guest today has been Nicole Bauman, advocacy coordinator with Care Oklahoma. Nicole, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Listeners, thank you for being here as well. I think a huge thread through everything Nicole said today, right, is that decisions are made by those who show up. Um, And you can do that, not just with elected officials, but with your friends, your neighbors, your loved ones, your grandfather who needs a little help, um, your, you know, neighbor down the street that's lawn is too tall and you're mad at them. And maybe it's up to you to have a conversation and just offer or just go knock on the door and say, hey, can I mow your yard for you? Um, they might appreciate it, even if they're willing and able, you know, everyone's got a heavy burden, right? All right. Uh, on that note, we will be back, uh, next week, guys, we are nearing episode 250 and it'll be just in a few weeks. Uh, and we are planning some kind of big event. I should have an announcement for you uh, between now and next week, and we hope to see you there. Have a good week.